Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library here in Sultry, Savannah, this is Obscure Season 3, Wuthering Heights. I am your host, your friend, your ear lover, your literary mansplainer-in-chief, and Georgianologist, Michael Ian Black, Southern Gentleman, Esquire. Back at ya with another episode of Obscure, and, uh, you know, there's that saying, beans, beans, the magical fruit, the more you eat, the more you toot. Well, let me put, let me put that to bed right now, all right? We had beans last night, just a big bean salad for dinner, and, uh, was I, did it cause me any, uh, any tootin'? You bet it did, lots of it, still continuing to this day, so, you know, any odd sounds you hear emanating from me this episode, well, I, I can't be blamed. That's the beans talking, you know? There's that expression, full of beans. And that's what I am, folks. In every sense of the word. Oh, it's been a quiet week here in Lake Wobegon. Really not much going on, actually. Uh, traveling again. I mean, I'm constantly traveling. Every every time I check in with you, I'm coming back from someplace else. This week, it's Houston, Texas. I was out there in Houston, Texas doing shows and uh, pleasant enough time. One good thing about living in Savannah is because it's so hot here, when you go to another hot city, you think to yourself, oh, this is fine. It's just like, it's just like it is back at home. Houston and Savannah, you know, sister cities of heat and humidity. One thing I didn't know about Houston is uh, it's kind of it's kind of a liberal town. I didn't that didn't never really occur to me before, you know. I mean, I knew they had elected some progressive lesbian mayor at some point, but I thought you know I thought Austin was the only place you could go to escape the uh, oppression of 
Texas Republican politics, but apparently Houston has its own progressive streak as well, and we need all the progressive streaks we can get as we contemplate a Poe, not a Poe, well, the world is Poe for it, but a post-Roe v. Wade world. That is the big headline from this week, outrageous, uh, although we knew it was coming, of course, to be faced with the reality of it is outrageous. It is a poor country, poor, more poor country than it was last week as the oppressive forces of a certain minority of Christian fundamentalists bear down on us with all of their weight. My God, one can feel their boots on our necks, and it is so frustrating. So frustrating to be living in a regressive democracy, because that is what we are at the moment, and have been for, oh gee, I don't know. I mean, how do you measure these things? You know, it feels like we've been regressing for at least the last four or five years, but maybe it's been longer than that. I don't know. And look, I know the pendulum of history swings both ways. These things tend to self-correct over time until they don't. That's the thing. There's no guarantees that just because the pendulum swung one way one time, it's going to swing the other. I understand the nature of pendulums, but there's no... There's no uh, guarantee that somebody's not just going to snatch the pendulum from the air as it's swinging one way and just keep it from swinging to other. No guarantee of that at all. And in fact, we see innumerable hands reaching out into the body politic trying to arrest any progress. It is happening in front of our faces. It is happening in plain sight. And it all feels very precarious at the moment. I have an old friend who lives in Denmark, and I said to her, maybe I should move to Denmark. She said, come on out. It's a whole other reality here. And I thought to myself, well, a whole other reality sounds pretty good right now, because this reality is terrible. All of it centered around some anachronistic I don't even say say anachronistic. It's because it's not anachronistic. It's it's what is it exactly? It's 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 actually very of the moment. Um, a, a very of the moment code of quote unquote morality, in which morality does not really seem to be present because it isn't about that at all. It is about something much more insidious. And we all, I think, intuitively understand that. It is about power and control by white people. And really, almost nothing else. But, you know, you tear out some pages of the Bible and you gift wrap it up in that. And you put a little bow on it and you say, we're saving babies. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is putting our boots on the necks of anybody who doesn't look like us and think like us. And uh, it's not good, folks. I feel like every week I get on here and talk about something terrible that's happening in the world, and maybe that's because terrible things 
seem to constantly be happening in the world. Not even the world, our own country. There's things in the world I can mention, not going to, but just here at home. Terrible things week after week, month after month, for low these many years. These dark MAGA years. Well, so we turn to literature, you know, to kind of have a bit of an escape and enjoy other people's problems, enjoy other people's sufferings. That's what literature is good for, reveling in the misfortune of others. And we can do it because they're just make them up people, you know, just cut from paper. Somebody put a little pen to paper, cut them out with scissors and paste them up on a wall and you throw darts at them and see how they suffer. Well, it's tremendous fun and nobody gets hurt, not for real. People can cause pain and we root for him. We're rooting for Heathcliff in his own way. Let's see just how much trouble he can cause. Let's see how much ink he can spill. He's run off with Isabella. That coquettish young thing. That dunderhead. That poppet. He has snatched her up and ridden away with her into the dark night. Well, that's our understanding anyway. At this point, we, we, we're not exactly sure what has happened, but Catherine is having a fit. Edgar is trying to assuage her. Nellie went to fetch the doctor. On the way, he said he had overheard Heathcliff and Isabella, and they were making plans to abscond. Well, they abscond, they have. I could not pursue them, however, and I dare not rouse the family and fill the place with confusion, still less unfold the business to my master." absorbed as he was in his present calamity, and having no heart to spare for a second grief. That is where we left it off last time. Let us pick it up again. We are in chapter... I think we're still in 12. Let's just check that. Yep, chapter 12, Wuthering Heights. I saw nothing for it but to hold my tongue, and suffer matters to take their course, and Kenneth being arrived, I went with a badly composed countenance to announce him. Well, sure, you know. Nellie, Nellie, Nellie is the keeper of secrets in this book, is she not, until it suits her purpose to not keep them, and then she suffers tongue lashings and everything else, but nobody can seem to get it in their hearts to get rid of poor Nellie, and thank God, thank God they haven't, because otherwise we wouldn't have a narrator. Catherine lay in a troubled sleep. Her husband had succeeded in soothing the access of frenzy. He now hung over her pillow, watching every shade and every change of her painfully expressive features. The doctor, on examining the case for himself, spoke hopefully to him of its having a favorable termination, if we could only preserve around her perfect and constant tranquility. To me, he signified the threatening danger was not so much death as permanent alienation of intellect. Well, that's what this whole country is suffering from, is it not a permanent alienation of intellect? We done gone cray. Everybody and everything gone cray. And it just doesn't seem like there's a thing to do about it because if the only medication is perfect and constant tranquility, well, we're up shit's creek because we certainly don't have that. I did not close my eyes that night, nor did Mr. Linton. 
Indeed, we never went to bed, and the servants were all up long before the usual hour, moving through the house with stealthy tread and exchanging whispers as they encountered each other in their vocations. Everyone was active but Miss Isabella, and they began to remark how sound she slept. Her brother, too, asked if she had risen, and seemed impatient for her presence, and hurt that she showed so little anxiety for her sister-in-law. I trembled lest he should send me to call her, but I was spared the pain of being the first proclaimant of her flight. One of the maids, a thoughtless girl, who had been on an early errand to Gimmerton, came panting upstairs, open-mouthed, and dashed into the chamber, crying, Oh, dear, dear, what mum we have next? Master, our master, our young lady. And then, uh, there's a footnote after mun. What mun we have next? Well, let's just turn to the back there and see what a mun is. M-U-N. Mun. Must. Must. I see. This is, this is like Joseph talk. Just... She's saying, what must we have next? Just another calamity has befallen us. Hold your noise, cried I hastily, enraged at her clamorous manner. Speak lower, Mary, what is the matter? Said Mr. Linton, what ails your young lady? She's gone, she's gone. Young Heathcliff's run off with her. (laughs) (laughs) Gasped the girl. "'That is not true,' exclaimed Linton, rising in agitation. "'It cannot be. How has the idea entered your head? "'Ellen Dean, go and seek her. It is incredible. It cannot be.' "'As he spoke, he took the servant to the door, "'and then repeated his demand to know her reasons for such an assertion. "'Why, I met on the road a lad that fetches milk here,' she stammered, "'and he asked whether we weren't in trouble at the Grange. "'I thought he meant for Mrs. Sickness, so I answered yes.' Then says he, there's somebody gone after him, I guess. I stared. He saw I knew naught about it, and he told how a gentleman and lady had stopped to have a horse's shoe fastened at a blacksmith shop two miles out of Gimmerton, not very long after midnight, and how the blacksmith's lass had got up to spy who they were. She knew them both directly, and she noticed the man. Heathcliff it was, she felt certain. Nobody could mistake him. Besides, put a sovereign in her father's hand for payment. The lady had a cloak about her face, but having desired a sup of water, while she drank it fell back and we saw her very plain. Heathcliff held both bridles as they rode on, and they set their faces from the village and went as fast as the rough roads would let them. The lass said nothing to her father, but she told it all over Gamerton this morning. Well, she's quite a little gossip. Isn't she quite a little gossip? Didn't tell her father, but told everybody, every passerby, including the little lad from uh, Thrushcross Grange. I ran and peeped for form's sake into Isabella's room, confirming when I returned a servant's statement. Mr. Linton had resumed his seat by the bed. On my re-entrance, he raised his eyes, read the meaning of my blank aspect, and dropped them without giving an order or uttering a word. Are we to try any measures for overtaking and bringing her back, I inquired. How should we do? She went of her own accord, answered the master. She had a right to go if she pleased. Trouble me no more about her. Hereafter she is only my sister in name, not because I disown her, but because she had disowned me. And that was all he said on the subject. 
he did not make a single inquiry further, nor mention her in any way, except directing me to send what property she had in the house to her fresh home, wherever it was, when I knew it. End of chapter 12. The build-up has been slow, but now we're just sort of galloping at a, at a, at a, at a, at a pace here. We're just racing along as quick as Heathcliff's horse, are we not, into the night. Where do you think they're going? On past Gimmerton Kirk, into parts unknown. Where are they going to set up house? Who knows? And how long will it last? Really not. I mean, we know Heathcliff will not abide his new lassie. He just won't. So how does that thing end? I don't know. Probably with Isabella coming back, hat in hand, in tears, you know? Or in a, in a grave. But uh, we can contemplate that for a moment anyway. I mean, we're at the end of chapter 12. It's been a, an exciting chapter. The most exciting yet. Uh, which makes some sense. I mean, we're halfway through the book or so. And, uh, you know, that's what happens. You know, you build up to a climax and you, you get one of these big high points there right about halfway through and then things kind of simmer down for a while and then you build it back up again and then things kind of simmer down and then you build it up one final time and then you have your denouement. God, I love a good denouement. Anyway, let's take a little break. Back in a moment here on Obscure. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. We return to Thrushcross Grange, back on Obscure. Heathcliff and Isabella riding through the night. And uh, Edgar Linton dealing with his wife, who is out of her ever-loving mind. And uh, hopefully, you know, we'll get a little breath here, because it's exhausting. We'll get a little breath here as we begin Chapter 13. For two months, the fugitives remained absent. In those two months, Mrs. Linton encountered and conquered the worst shock of what was denominated a brain fever. A brain fever? That's what they're calling it? I mean, you can only have so many literary devices. And I guess it's one thing when you're 
you know, writing in the 19th century and nobody knows what the hell anything is. So you just make up shit. Ah, she had a brain fever. She just went cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. There's a brain fever, you know? There's no such thing, a brain fever. You can have a stroke. She didn't have a stroke. She just kind of freaked out. No matter. No mother could have nursed an only child more devotedly than Edgar tended her. Day and night he was watching, and patiently enduring all the annoyances that irritable nerves and a shaken reason could inflict. And though Kenneth remarked that what he saved from the grave would only recompense his care by forming the source of constant future anxiety, in fact that his health and strength were being sacrificed to preserve a mere ruin of humanity, he knew no limits in gratitude and joy when Catherine's life was declared out of danger. Now, didn't Kenneth say she was going to die? Wasn't Kenneth the one who's like, ah, yeah, 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 she's all fucked up. She's not going to make it. You might, you might as well crumple her up and throw her away. Didn't he say that, basically? She wasn't going to survive the night or some such nonsense, but now here she is. And uh, now he's saying, you know, what are you bothering with with her for? You know, all the all the energy that you're giving to her while well, you're, just, you're just taking it away from your own future self. You're digging your own grave, kid. This Dr. Kenneth, I don't know. You know, where did, where did he get his degree? A box of Frosted Flakes? Hard to say, but he doesn't seem like a very good doctor, you know? You'd think America would have better doctors than this guy. Hour after hour, he would sit beside her, tracing the gradual return to bodily health and flattering his two sanguine hopes with the illusion that her mind would settle back to its right balance also, and she would soon be entirely her former self. Well, her former self was terrible. We don't really want, he doesn't really want her former self. He doesn't want the former self that she was before he married her. He wants the, the latter day self that was putting on airs when Heathcliff was out of the picture. Well, Heathcliff's out of the picture again, so maybe he could have some hopes that she will return to that, but it is not her true self. The first time she left her chamber was at the commencement of the following March. Mr. Linton had put on her pillow in the morning a handful of golden crocuses. Her eye, long stranger to any gleam of pleasure, caught them in waking and shone delighted as she gathered them eagerly together. These are the earliest flowers at the heights, she exclaimed. They remind me of soft thaw winds and warm sunshine and nearly melted snow. Edgar, is there not a south wind, and is not the snow almost gone? The snow is quite gone down here, darling, replied her husband, and I only see two white spots on the whole range of moors. The sky is blue, and the larks are singing, and the becks and brooks are all brimful. Catherine, last spring at this time, I was longing to have you under this roof. Now I wish you were a mile or two up those hills the air blows so sweetly. I feel that it would cure you. I shall never be there but once more, said the invalid, and then you'll leave me, and I shall remain forever. Next spring you'll long again to have me under this roof, and you'll look back and think you were happy today. She's saying, you know, I'm, I may be right of mind right now, but hey, kid, I'm going to die. I'm still telling you I'm going to die. I'll be dead by next spring. We can go up there. You know, I'll, I'll go up there one more time with you. But the truth is, when I do, I'm not coming back. I'm going to die. And uh, I like that. I do like that. She's steadfast in her portents 
that she is going to die. Uh, reminded me that, you know, so I, I posted on the Patreon page that my daughter had been reading Owen Meany, and there's a quote uh, in Owen Meany regarding Jude the Obscure about a prayer that Jude utters, a kind of bleak prayer. And now I'm struck by another parallel here that Owen Meany himself, I mean, the whole plot of Owen Meany is that he knows the time and place of his death. And so does Catherine. Catherine, too, is a Owen Meany-esque character, or more properly, Owen Meany is a Brontean character, to know the time and place of your death. I don't know that Catherine knows precisely the way Owen does, but she certainly knows that by next spring, she's going to be laying in a grave up there by Gimmerton Kirk, and he's going to be thinking how happy they were on that day. Linton lavished on her the kindest caresses and tried to cheer her by the fondest words, but vaguely regarding the flowers, she let the tears collect on her lashes and stream down her cheeks unheeding. We knew she was really better and therefore decided that long confinement to a single place produced much of this despondency and it might be partially removed by a change of scene. The master told me to light a fire in the many weeks deserted parlor and to set an easy chair in the sunshine by the window. And then he brought her down and she sat a long while enjoying the genial heat. And as we expected, revived by the objects round her, which, though familiar, were free from the dreary associations investing her hated sick chamber. By evening, she seemed greatly exhausted, yet no arguments could persuade her to return to that apartment, and I had to arrange the parlor sofa for her bed till another room could be prepared. So it does seem like, yes, she's getting better. She is on the mend. The brain fever has subsided, a little color back in the cheeks, some sparkle in the eyes, some animation in the limbs, the nostrils twitching at the summer's or the spring air like a little bunny ready to hop about. But even so, she remains convinced that she shall not survive. And she seems fine with it. To obviate the... Again, Nellie and your vocabulary. Fantastic. She should have been a writer. To obviate the fatigue of mounting and descending the stairs, we fitted up this, where you lie at present, on the same floor with the parlor, and she was soon strong enough to move from one to the other, leaning on Edgar's arm. Ah, I thought myself, she might recover, so waited on as she was, and there was double cause to desire it, for on her existence depended that of another. We cherished the hope that in a little while Mr. Linton's heart would be gladdened and his hand secured from a stranger's gripe by the birth of an heir. A baby, a little baby. I should mention... So, but, I mean, Isabel, I mean, uh, Catherine has said very clearly that, I mean, look, she was in a brain fever at the time, but she said, you can have me, but you're never going to touch me again. I'm never going to love you, you know. Seems unlikely that she's going to produce an heir, but who knows. I should mention that Isabella sent to her brother, some six weeks from her departure, a short note announcing her marriage with Heathcliff. It appeared dry and cold, but at the bottom was dotted in with pencil in obscure... 
apology, and an entreaty for kind remembrance and reconciliation, if her proceeding had offended him, asserting that she could not help it then, and being done, she had no power to repeal it. Linton did not reply to this, I believe, and, in a fortnight more, I got a long letter, which I considered odd, coming from the pen of a bride just out of the honeymoon. I'll read it, for I keep it yet. Any relic of the dead is precious, if they were valued living. Bum, bum, bum. Did we know that Isabella dies? Did we know that before? I don't know that we knew that. But, uh, you know, Isabella apparently dead. D-E-D dead. Maybe we'll hold off on the letter till the next episode. I mean, we're already pretty much at the end. So, uh, you know, we could expostulate a little bit. But uh, so, as I said, we're getting a little bit of a breather here. You know, Catherine is on the mend. Isabella has run off with Heathcliff. They've married. She wrote a little letter to her brother saying, hey, bro, hey, I'm sorry if I caused offense, but I had to do it. The heart wants what it wants, bro. Uh, Please don't be mad at me. And he's like, fuck you. I'm not even answering your stupid letter. And he didn't. So, consequently, Isabella puts pen to paper again and writes to the housekeeper. Because everybody confides in Nellie for some reason. You know, she's, she's more a part of the family than anybody else. Like, she's more intimately connected to each member of this family than they are to each other. She knows their own hearts better than they know the hearts of their own flesh and blood. Well... Maybe that's just the way it is with certain people. They have a kind of charisma that attracts, you know, that loosens the tongue, shall we say, and uh, lets people sort of be themselves a little bit more freely than they would otherwise. I don't know. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Um, Next time we'll read the letter, we'll find out what Isabella has to say. So who dies first, Isabella or Catherine? I don't know. I'm excited, though, to find out. But every every person Heathcliff touches, you know, turns to ash in one way or another. Very, very disappointing in him. He is a serial heartbreaker. I don't think, you know, he's not like the creature. He's not strangling them to death with his hands, but he's doing it. Somehow he's doing it, you know. Women are just falling dead at his feet. We'll leave it there, and we will resume next time on another portentous episode of Obscure. But until then, I wish you adieu. This season of Obscure is produced by me, Michael Ian Black, and Robin Lynn. Our theme music is by Craig Wedren. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Michael Ian Black and get even more obscure content at our site, patreon.com slash Michael Ian Black. Thank you for listening.